Hello, I'm Greg, and welcome to a Talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations number 8. This is going back to the first couple of months in the history of the show, April 2010, and I think I'm going to probably release Talkback episodes for number 8 and number 9 back-to-back. It is, It has been and still is my intention to get to new episodes of Inappropriate Conversations, new episodes looking back maybe even just one year and looking at kind of what this year of coronavirus and post-COVID-19 life experience has been. And to provide a little bit of taste for that, I've got a quick question that I want to start this show with before looking back to the Christian response to the sexual revolution or the lack of a Christian response to the sexual revolution in specific. And a different drummer in David R. Mace that I mentioned in a talkback episode just before Christmas, this past Christmas, about companionship marriage. Uh, so the rest of the story, in other words, on the writings and thoughts and influence of David R. Mace as a theologian and as a uh, Christian counselor at the height of the sexual revolution. This show gives me a chance to challenge myself, and the notion I've got that my point of view has not really changed that much over, say, the course of the last 10 or 15 years. I intend to uh, share this episode, which shares ideas which even go back further than that, written originally as sort of essay notes to myself. And I've told myself that, you know, although my my points of view, my worldview, my experiences have informed me in a way that has led to some degree of evolution, I don't think I've had any sort of radical road to Damascus type experience where I've encountered an experience or met a person or been in a situation that completely turned my worldview around 180 degrees. But I'm guessing there'll be some elements of change when you look back more than 11 years and make a comparison to a show that was recorded before April 23rd, 2010, but released on April 23rd, 2010. Before I get there, though, I was asking myself a question driving down the road just this week, because in some of the streets near where I live, new stoplights have gone up. And these are stoplights at intersections that didn't previously have any sort of four-way stop sign or anything else that was forcing traffic to responsibly yield. You had a major four-lane road with a speed limit around 40, 45 miles an hour that was leading up to a couple of residential streets where the speed limit was 25 or 30 miles an hour. And a stop sign at the residential street was controlling the flow of traffic into the into the major road. But you also had the left-hand turn issue where enough houses had been built down these streets that you had uh, automobile accidents being caused by people with you know pedestrian traffic trying to cross the major street, with people making left-hand turns getting rear-ended, with people in the neighborhood, uh, the residential street, pulling out in front of traffic, sometimes just in front of traffic going in the same direction they intended to go, like making a right-hand turn into traffic in America, or cutting across several lanes of traffic to make a left-hand turn in what's proving to be a very dangerous intersection. You don't just find the city spending um, money on uh, the kind of analysis that civil engineers do and the equipment involved in a stoplight uh, for no reason. Usually there's life and death reasons behind the installation of a brand new stoplight to force traffic in all directions to yield to one another in what is very much the traditional American way of managing traffic flow. But the thought that occurred to me is, 
If you uh, discount everything that happened before the presence of the stoplight, if you just grant, hey, this is a potentially dangerous intersection, if drivers were left into their own to try to navigate decisions about a complete stop and when and how to turn after a complete stop, and even right away when it comes to left-hand turns and the management of pedestrians, all that, just put all that in the past. The problem's been solved by the new stoplight. But then there's a question that comes up to me regarding the new stoplight. And that's basically this. When is the most dangerous point in time when a new stoplight has gone up? Where the previously dangerous intersection has been provided this safety net of traffic lights, red, yellow, green, controlling the flow of traffic. When is the most dangerous moment for drivers in particular when a light like that goes into place? And maybe the answer to the question is so obvious that the question itself is arguably silly. Hard to say. But I think if you see the way like the uh, the people in, in my city have handled it, with signs going up before the lights are even turned on, alerting you know drivers that, that this light is going to be uh, in full effect starting on April 10th or whatever the day may be, and maybe even having a second set of lights there to just flash yellow, to just get drivers used to seeing those lights and looking for those lights, providing an, a kind of a, an alert that a traffic light is going into place. But once that period of pre-warning is over and the stoplight is in effect, what is the most dangerous point in time for drivers trying to go through that intersection? And it seems to me the answer is, well, obviously... The very first time you go through that intersection is the first time you've gone through an intersection where this concept of red and yellow and green lights are in effect. And therefore, if you're not mindful of it, if you're not watchful for it, you could be pulling out down the road into a situation where you're not expecting that any force is going to make you stop. And if you don't recognize a red light, and if you don't stop for the red light, if you proceed through that intersection on this main highway, this main roadway, as you had for months, years, decades prior to this point, if you're inattentive to the existence of the red light, you are probably in the most likely situation to get yourself or someone in another vehicle into a deadly or at least serious automobile accident with you as one of the drivers of the cars involved because the most dangerous time to be moving through an intersection with a brand new stoplight is when that stoplight is brand new. When there is an illusion on the part of some people that for the first time they are able to pull through this intersection as if they've got some sort of right-of-way, quite literally a right-of-way, and if that right-of-way is presumed to be a safety measure where you're not going through from that residential road as if you still can't trust all those drivers paying attention to the light, or if you're a driver on the main road not really realizing, recognizing, paying attention to the light, this period of time until everyone is sort of used to the fact that a traffic light is in effect is an extremely dangerous period. It is arguably more dangerous for drivers and pedestrians than the period of time before the light was there. And this becomes extremely tricky. I would argue that when it comes to COVID-19, we are as a society in that very danger inflection point right now. We're at a place where some people, rightly or wrongly, perceive they've got more freedom, safety, more right-of-way than they've had in a very long time. And it creates an illusion for people who do not have yet that same degree of, say, vaccination 
as other people that things are quote-unquote back to normal, when in fact we don't yet have enough information. We haven't yet had enough trips through this new intersection with the brand new traffic light in it. Do you have any confidence in that whether that relative degree of safety is actually accurate or not? And for that reason, we see spikes in cases. In the area where I live in, it's as if the vaccination hasn't happened yet because the caseloads are still the same. The hospitalization rates are still roughly the same. And the reason for that is that people have gone out ahead of the actual impact of the vaccination program itself. We've gotten ahead of the actual degree of safety that this might provide for us. And part of the reason that we've gotten out ahead of it is that we're assuming that this traffic light is accomplishing something that it has not yet had an opportunity to accomplish. We need to be acting like people in the residential street who get the green light and are still checking both ways and inching out and making sure the drivers on the main road are seeing and acknowledging and obeying that stoplight. Because the consequences, if we don't, could be serious. They could even be life and death. And so for me, as I'm looking around and considering the year that we've been in and the way we've tried to deal with this from a life perspective and just how we handle the additional levels of safety that we're trying to live within kind of reminds me of the danger point of what happens when you, for the very first time in a long time, think you're safe because, well, you've been vaccinated, but maybe others haven't. Or you're trusting that other people having had a vaccine means that you somehow aren't going to get exposed to it. As if somebody who has a vaccine and therefore isn't going to come down with COVID-19 themselves can't spread it to you through handshake or inhaling and exhaling or unintentional spittle or whatever else the reasons may be. We aren't yet safe, despite the fact that we might be able to look upward and point to a stoplight. As we veer into Inappropriate Conversations number eight, and my thoughts on the sexual revolution and carving that up from different angles, and sharing David R. Mace's thought about the sexual revolution and how Christians ought to respond and how we know in retrospect they did not respond, I also feel like there's a little bit of a heads up I need to offer, and that these oldest shows, and this one is about as old as the ones I'm going to reshare, have perhaps some suspect sound quality. Um, This intro may too, we'll see. It's, uh, again, talking about people being out and about again. I'm now living in a a cul-de-sac that was fairly quiet to living in a cul-de-sac that's a bustle of activity because people feel safe and they're out about. They're mowing their yard several times a week and they're they're four-wheeling on the street and stuff like that. So sound quality is an issue. The other thing is I'm probably offering promotional clips for shows that I was definitely engaged with and listening to 10 years ago that may not exist anymore. So the promos may be out of date. And references to the URL on how to interact with inappropriate conversations in some ways will be out of date. Now, IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com is still the email. I've stubbornly kept that because there was no reason to make a change. But getting in touch with the website, uh, going to look for other older shows that aren't available on pod feeds, for example. That is now at inappropriateconversations.org. There's a redirect from inappropriateconversations.com. I usually uh, find the website when I'm looking for older shows and checking dates and reading past blurbs. I use www.inappropriateconversations.org. It's not that I'm no longer on Podbean, but the Podbean link is definitely not the best way to interact with the show. 
Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the Christian response to the sexual revolution, as if there actually was one. Before I begin, let me note that this episode is going to have scientific terminology regarding sexual behavior. As such, I do not view this as an explicit episode. I'm going to deal very factually and yet very frankly with issues. Perhaps next week, I'll include some things, at least from clips, that might bring about my first explicit tag. I have been asked in the past if I believe in a magic man in the sky, if that is God. No. I believe in billions of what we call years, laying out an infinite, or I think we'd have to call it infinite anyway, pattern of causes and effects that could only be comprehended from an eternal and omniscient perspective, and that the artist behind this tapestry does beautiful work. There. I have just failed completely to describe God, and yet I've come closer to the truth than you'll hear in most churches. How does that connect to the sexual revolution in America, and much of the world, really, for the 1960s and 1970s? Many ways, actually. Here are two. First, if you are a theist, you believe that God created sex and called it good. It is obvious, but sometimes my Christian friends need a reminder. Jewish friends? Less so. Muslim friends? Well, sad to say we don't discuss it. Second, to have faith in God. Something not superstitious, not the magic man in the sky idea, but genuine faith in God is to accept the concepts of cause and effect. Call it consequences if you like, describe it as the fall of mankind, perhaps use more scientific language. Do what you must, but acknowledge the role of cause and effect, please. So, I'm hitting today's conversation with a couple of assumptions that are crucial and, to my mind, really obvious. First, there was a sexual revolution. And second, something caused it. To address these issues properly, though, I need to start with our different drummer for this week, David R. Mace. If this sounds like I'm quoting a book jacket, I am. The book is called The Christian Response to the Sexual Revolution. It was written in 1970, right in the heart of the tumultuous events. Dr. David Mace is an internationally known authority on marriage and family guidance, a professor of family sociology at the Behavioral Sciences Center of Bowman Gray School of Medicine, Wake Forest University. He previously served as executive director of the American Association of Marriage Counselors and as Executive Director of the National Marriage Guidance Council of Great Britain. 
Dr. Mace has published well over a thousand articles in everything from scholarly journals to the magazines you might find on the newsstand. And he is also the author of numerous books, including this one that I'm going to refer to quite liberally here, The Christian Response to the Sexual Revolution. But first, a little bit more about Dr. Mace. I found very little information about him online. I fear that perhaps he's become a forgotten individual in the area of sociology and particularly in the area of the Christian response to challenges that face uh, marriage and society. And I'm still going to call it the modern world. Anything really from 1960-something to the modern era. I did find one article, though, where Dr. Mace was introduced this way. The best authority in the world on marriage and family from a Christian perspective. A Methodist minister turned Quaker, a British native turned American, an adventurous motorcyclist turned tender counselor, and an overachieving author, speaker, minister, and activist. He never hesitated to work sacrificially in support of Christian marriages and Christian homes. Now, this was many years ago, and I'm sad to say that Dr. Mace has passed on. But what he left us is a very interesting legacy. If you look to the words that he spoke into the controversy over the sexual revolution in the late 1960s and in 1970 itself, I want to share a couple of his concepts before I get into my thoughts and my ideas about what the Christian response to the sexual revolution was or was not, and by all means, what it should have and could have been. Any serious attempt to study the basis of the traditional Christian sex ethic soon makes it clear that the whole structure rests upon foundations that have almost completely been discredited, either by modern scientific knowledge or by the conditions of modern life, so completely different either from those of Palestine in biblical times or of medieval Europe. As an aside, let me note, here is Greg. This is a book published in 1970. So he's talking about what we would call some fairly old science. Quoting Dr. Mace, The two main pillars on which the ancient structure rests are the Hebrew horror of wasting semen and the Augustinian concept of the inherent sinfulness of sexual desire and its role in transmitting original sin to offspring. Add to this men's property rights in women's sexuality and the concept of unnatural acts as developed by Aquinas and others. Again and again, it is from these principles that Christian standards of sexual behavior have been derived. Relate modern teachings to these principles and they begin to make some sense. Take away these foundations and they collapse in disorder. The plain fact is that these principles have lost their validity today. We know now that semen contains millions of sperms and that these, and not the fluid as a whole, carry the new life and that an inevitable wastage of sperms takes place on a fantastic scale. We do not now regard sexual desire as inherently sinful, and the science of genetics has taught us that the hereditary characteristics of the parent are transmitted to the young through the chromosomes and genes, and that the undeniable perverseness of human nature gets through quite regardless of the sexual excitement that accompanies intercourse. In our modern world, the idea that whatever is quote-unquote unnatural, which is identified according to John Calvin by our reaction of repugnance. Let me take an aside here and just call this out, that what we call unnatural today has by and large been defined by Calvin, and his standard was, does it give the person a reaction of repugnance? 
It's a completely subjective standard, one that you cannot conceive of having any sort of credibility from the perspective of a court of law, shouldn't have any respectability or accountability from you know, legislation in Congress or, or state legislatures either. Look at it this way, that this standard that whatever is unnatural is consequently wrong would be totally unacceptable if you were looking at it from the perspective of stomach pumps or heart transplants or astronauts drinking their own and each other's distilled urine. On what, then, are we to base our Christian standards of sex morality? Why not on the ethical teaching of Jesus? Sexual behavior falls within the sphere of human relationships, and in that area we have a quite clear criteria in the Golden Rule and in the commandments to love our neighbor. Yet, in all traditional Christian writings on sex morality that I have read, this referring to David Mace back in 1970, I cannot recall a single instance in which this basic ethical teaching of Jesus is taken as the guideline. What Mace is sharing here is that there are certain assumptions that have been made throughout history based on very old writing. Now, I don't want to infer that there's no such thing as original sin, but I do believe that the notion of Augustine and others, that original sin meant that if you were in a moment of heightened passion, if your arousals were inflamed, if you were thinking lustful thoughts at the time of intercourse, and that the resulting impregnation was therefore going to be doomed to be a sinful human, uh, that's not really the perspective that we would look at it from. We do understand today that the genetic code is passed from genes and chromosomes and that, you know, human nature is what it is, regardless of how much fun or how little fun the parents of that child would have been having. Perhaps the most pronounced is the notion of Aquinas and others that there was only one sperm in semen to correspond with the one egg from the woman's ovary and therefore it was an act of murder or a potential act of murder or an act of potential murder for that semen to be wasted. As Dr. Mace points out so clearly, we really know now that with every ejaculation, there are millions and millions of sperm wasted and that this one-to-one -one logic, which drives what we still have in a lot of our sexual ethics today, comes to us from a very limited understanding of science in the Middle Ages. So what does Dr. Mace recommend that we do about this? I'm going to go into some detail about what the Christian church did not do in response to the sexual revolution. But I'm thankful to Dr. Mace, and I feel very comfortable calling him out as a different drummer because of the positive answer he gives, because of the suggestions that he raises that I think really would have made a difference at that crucial time. I also like the fact that Dr. Mace is, for whatever reason, sadly I would say, underappreciated, less well-known, and underregarded today. When you hear what he has to say and his suggestions for how some of the negative things that have come from the sexual revolution might have been properly countered, I think you'll see what I mean. Picking up there, Dr. Mace says this, There are, in fact, at least some fundamental principles governing sexual relationships that any responsible human community would have to insist upon for a start. The first is that gross exploitation of one person by another for sexual purposes cannot be tolerated, or no one is secure. The second is that sexual behavior that offends the community's sense of propriety and good taste must not be flaunted publicly. The third is that men and women must assume responsibility for children born as a result of their sexual unions. 
Disregard for these three basic rules would soon cause serious trouble in any society. I would offer that they probably have already caused serious trouble in our societies today. Picking back up with Dr. Mace, he says this, Beyond these primary safeguards, others soon begin to emerge. For example, most of us would not want to encourage incestuous sex relationships, and we would want to set age limits to prevent the very young from becoming sexually involved too early in life. So we could go on, and soon a system of sex ethics would begin to take shape. The simple truth is that the social control of sex expression, as Jeffrey May called it, always has been and always will be a responsibility of any organized human community. The sexual revolution thus launches us inevitably upon a quest for the true meaning of human sexuality. So I credit David Mace, not with saying that the sexual revolution in its whole was entirely bad. Instead, what Dr. Mace did was take a look at the effects that were obvious around him, effects that were represented by the sexual revolution in various facets, and ask questions about what those causes were. Those questions led him to conclude that certain aspects of what we call traditional Christian philosophy about sexual ethics and sexual behavior were in and of themselves non-biblical, or at the very least, extra-biblical going beyond anything that the Bible says, and imposing new standards based on the writings of people who came well after the original biblical authors, and many of those with seriously flawed assumptions, or assumptions based on societies which may have functioned okay in medieval Europe or ancient Palestine, but do not have the right answers for our modern world. So, very happy to cite David Mace as a different drummer, and actually, I think, the first different drummer that has led off a program. That's a place of honor that, in my mind, is well-earned. Now that I've laid a foundation with David R. Mace's perspective, let me jump into my own ideas about the Christian response to the sexual revolution. The truth is that American Christians never actually responded to the so-called sexual revolution. As a matter of fact, a great many of today's conservative Christians would flatly reject the response Mace proposed so many decades ago. We're talking 40 years now, I suppose. For example, Mace's acknowledgement of the existence of things like homosexuality and pornography would have been absolutely unacceptable or would still be absolutely unacceptable. To understand the actual costs of the sexual revolution and the absence of any meaningful counter-revolution, we must first examine some of the realities that really can't be taken for granted. So if we take as a given that there was a sexual revolution, and it was the result of some cause and effect that made it, for want of a better word, inevitable, then the last thing I would say is that the sexual revolution was caused both by the actions of some people, maybe many people, but also by the inaction of others. We think of that turbulent period in American cultural history as a time when significant things were said and significant things were done. But we must also acknowledge that it was a period of time in which, significantly, certain things were not said and not done. David Mace wrote his book in 1970. There was plenty of time for a response. I would say that as a society, we allowed sexual revolution to occur. And the subsequent lack of any significant counter-revolution is particularly damning to Christians. Since religious groups, and particularly conservative Christian groups, 
purport to have a stake in the moral health of our society, this paralysis in the face of a great moral crisis reveals much about the ability of Christian leaders to influence our society. To review, we are taking a few things for granted here. There was a sexual revolution, it was inevitable, and we cannot blame the revolution, or by extension, its consequences, on them. As Christians, there's a lot of us in there too. Before I make it sound as if critics of our society's present moral conditions are crying about a rainy day, Let's examine the very real consequences that worry a great many Americans. Here are just five of the most significant problems or challenges attributed to the sexual revolution. Abortion, pornography, illegitimacy, divorce, and homosexuality. I'll get to my argument that the last one is perhaps less a direct cause and effect based on the sexual revolution, but I think it's there in the minds of many conservatives and therefore worth discussing. The scope of all of these problems, regardless how much you attribute them to the sexual revolution, is undeniable. Even if you strongly support safe and legal abortion in principle, a million per year is a shocking rate. Imagine how shocking that rate would have been to both conservatives and liberals in the 1960s. The 3 to 5% of crisis abortions, instances such as rape and incest and health concerns, That number is probably a higher total than many early pro-choice activists believed they were choosing. They weren't choosing 1.5 million a year. As an element of the revolution, pornography was supposed to serve its purpose, perhaps as a symbolic binge of free expression. And then once it no longer enjoyed the distinction of being new, maybe it was going to fade. Maybe it was going to level off. Well, either pornography is in still sense uh, increasingly necessary, something I hesitate to suggest, or the acceptance of pornography's role in the sexual revolution was granted some premature validity, but nothing about pornography has slowed down. We were naive to assume that birth control would counteract illegitimacy. Somehow the idea that the availability of birth control had a causal relationship with its proper usage was really flawed. This admission doesn't begin to even address the idea that you've got to factor in the annual abortion rate. Despite pre- and post-conception methods of eliminating childbirth, some communities still have illegitimacy rates north of 30%. Divorce, in its own way, kind of creates another level of semi-illegitimacy too. If approximately half of all marriages end in divorce now, and we assume that most of them involve children, these separations often create single-parent homes, and thus, there's where I make my comparison to the illegitimacy problem. If the challenge of illegitimacy is you have people in lower-income situations struggling to get by with only one wage earner, with only one parent in the household, uh, divorces and separations create some of that as well. The sexual revolution, by its nature, should have created better marriages. We broke the cycle of what I would call libidinous matrimony. No longer was it necessary to get married in order to have sexual relations with somebody. So... Why are we creating better marriages? I would say that right now, the people who don't have to marry as a means of sexual expression are getting divorced at a higher rate than those people who, whose marriages were the only way they could express their sexuality. Homosexuality is one of the most divisive social issues in our society. I don't think that's always a negative thing because it means that we're talking about it. We're arguing about it, but at least we're talking about it. 
But you know what? I don't really attribute homosexuality to the sexual revolution in any direct way. It's almost a side effect of the revolution. It may be enough to say that homosexuality may eventually be known as the Pandora's box of the sexual libertarians. AIDS has only heightened polarizing fears and accompanying prejudices about homosexuality, but a lot of those issues were really thrust into the spotlight by the sexual revolution. Each of these five issues, I hesitate to call all of them problems, but issues arising from the sexual revolution is a product of both liberalizing actions by some people, leaders of this new movement, and the inadequate response of those who should have been, in some areas, holding the line. Let me kind of wander through these five issues again and talk about the relationship to the sexual revolution and what we didn't do. The legalization of abortion caught many conservatives by complete surprise. While scholars in favor of abortion rights were making solid arguments against existing abortion law, opponents of abortion stood blindly by, hiding behind terms like murder. Does this sound familiar? We are 35 or 40 years into this debate, and precious little has changed in the pro-life approach to the issue. Although anti-abortion leaders have made creative use of legal arguments— They've done quite well in certain court appearances. It is almost nonsensical to refer to an anti-abortion scholar. Now, I actually think I could name a couple, but I would challenge anybody to send me an email at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com and name me more than two anti-abortion scholars. It's enough to say that from my perspective, if you look simply at the debate and score the arguments on their merit, that the pro-choice side has had the advantage here throughout the entire history of legal abortion. Pro-life groups have used the same set of arguments against abortion all this time. Early on, it was impossible to say how many illegal abortions were performed for American women. It would be even more speculative to estimate how many abortions would have been performed in the years before Roe v. Wade if, you know, the Supreme Court had made that decision earlier. Since that landmark decision, though, the numbers have been tabulated with a fair degree of accuracy— and they have been shockingly consistent. On the one hand, it is tempting to argue that, hey, maybe 1 million or 1.5 million abortions a year is simply the natural number for a population of 300 million people. Wow, that makes abortion sound ridiculously inevitable. On the other hand, and I think it's a hand holding a better set of cards, It's tempting to argue that neither the pro-choice nor pro-life propaganda has had much influence on the decisions of women seeking abortion. From a purely pro-choice point of view, this is not a problem. Women decide. Influencing individual decisions is not only unnecessary, it may be unwelcome from a pro-choice perspective. See, the pro-choice view is interested in maintaining the existence of this option, whether it's exercised or not. From a pure pro-life point of view, however, the inflexibility of the abortion totals indicates a complete public policy failure. Despite years of crying, screaming, and threatening, pro-life groups do not seem to be influencing the one constituency that actually has the most control over abortion frequency. In fact, if you have a pro-life perspective, I want to ask you right now to stop and consider who is in that constituency. Which group has the most control over the abortion rate? Is it judges? Is it doctors? Is it the President of the United States? Or is it unhappily pregnant women? It was really only a little more than 12 to 14 years ago 
that pro-life groups began addressing their message to unhappily pregnant women at all. And the saddest indictment I have for the mainstream Christian denominations, I'm talking to you, Roman Catholics, I'm talking to you, Southern Baptists, I'm talking to you, United Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, you know which group actually spoke out and reached out to unhappily pregnant women and made a suggestion that burying the child and putting the child up for adoption was an heroic act. It was the Mormons. The bottom line is that the unpersuasive arguments of the anti-abortion movement have consistently failed to affect the rate of abortion in America. The fear of being a murderer has held the abortion rate down to 1.5 million. Maybe it was only 1 million in 1975. We've had some years that were closer to 2 million. But other factors being equal, the same argument should be expected to maintain the same influence. The numbers support this logic. Consequently, the inadequacy of the pro-life position against abortion has as much to do with the high rate of abortion as its mere legality does. Okay, while religious leaders were failing to open a dialogue about issues like abortion and divorce, pornography was the source of significant Christian consternation. In hindsight, a great deal of time and effort and money was spent by conservatives battling against what might prove to be the least expensive of the five sexual revolutionary issues I'm addressing. The costs of divorce and illegitimacy to me are obvious. The costs of abortion are incalculable. Most of us will be paying the cost of AIDS in the form of insurance and research for the rest of our lives. And I think it's probably unfair to drop that AIDS bill entirely or even mostly on the lap of homosexuality. But if you just take the share of the blame that might go to rampant homosexual promiscuity, it is regardless how small, monstrously expensive. Instead of attacking what would become the big money issues and paying for the problems of the sexual revolution, religious groups instead spent millions attacking, and I would say as a result, publicizing so-called smut. Many movie makers and publishers actually pandered to this consternation of church leaders, it was an advertising plus for them. On the whole, conservative leaders played right into the hands of pornographers. While battling constant legal challenges you know, costs a lot more than conventional advertising, the notoriety just proved invaluable. Ironically, church groups elected to attack on the issue of pornography, which might have been effectively countered with a quiet disapproval. Without the hype, though, without the fear that a ban would deprive the curious of a momentary indulgence... Successful pornographic enterprises probably would have faded like a crowd in an automobile accident, but they didn't. Religious leaders were not opposed to the use of passive disapproval as a response to some of these social issues. In fact, that is largely the method that was used to address divorce. Like abortion, most reasonable people have little trouble conjuring up a hypothetical case where divorce would be so necessary that its denial would be criminal. Battered spouses, laden homosexuality, criminal incarceration, not to mention adultery. To further this analogy, though, these divorce scenarios are all nightmarish in nature, as nightmarish perhaps as facing an abortion decision. The same people who accept divorce as a necessary option can currently hope that it never happens to them. See the similarity? Unfortunately, our society never set a standard to distinguish between an unhappy marriage and an unacceptable marriage. We were unprepared, in many ways understandably. 
Who would have thought that the divorce rates would skyrocket in a culture where marriage itself is not necessary? The sexual revolution opened the door for sex without marriage. Before, during, after, and even childbearing outside of marriage. We'll get to that in a minute. While this freedom should have enabled people to find more suitable marriage partners, the opposite seemed to arise. Even within the strict Catholic tradition, a sense of retreat seemed to surround this issue. Somehow society threw the baby out with the bathwater, as the cliché goes. As we permitted bad marriages to dissolve, we did very little to improve the quality of the marriages being formed. The ultimate cost of the passive acceptance of divorce is illegitimacy. Large divorce numbers only furthered the devaluation of marriage as an institution. Many couples responded by avoiding the process altogether. By the time our cultural problems started manifesting themselves in illegitimacy, it was much too late for Christians to effectively respond to either promiscuity or divorce. Now, once young heterosexuals started burying it all, it was only a matter of time before homosexuals followed the trend. And again, religious leaders were totally unprepared. At the same time conservatives were failing miserably in a bid to legislate pornography out of existence, many of the same leaders believed that homosexuality, if put under proper pressure, could be stamped out of existence as well. Since the official Christian position at the time was that homosexuality was a deviant behavior, the official Christian response leaned heavily toward treating homosexuality as though it were a pungent form of adultery. At no point was sexual preference treated as an independent thing. Nowhere does this emerge more clearly than with sodomy laws. Many states, Georgia as a particular example, sought to prosecute homosexuality out of existence, or at least out of the mainstream, by using existing laws against certain sexual acts. Even as fellatio, cunnilingus, and other acts were successfully prosecuted, judicial success had little social impact or cultural impact whatsoever. It seemed obvious to most people that such sexual activity was common enough among heterosexuals that the grounds for singling out homosexuals seemed spurious. Sodomy convictions were outnumbered by heterosexual attempts to overturn the laws, laws that have been ignored in the past and would continue to be ignored in the future, and in fact, laws that the recent Supreme Court ruling, Lawrence v. Texas, may have finally dealt with for good. At the same time the conservative movement failed to legislate and prosecute homosexuality out of existence, it also failed to keep its public display under any sort of control. To respond to homosexuality as an issue by insisting that the acts offended community standards, conservatives would have had to have acknowledged a couple things that they really balked at. First, accept the existence of homosexuality. Whether you call that irretrievable homosexuality or actual homosexuality or non-choice-based homosexuality, it would have required pointing to it and saying, yeah, there it is. And second, permit such sexual acts to retreat into the private homes and continue unabated. By failing to engage in such a compromise, the church forced homosexuals to form the very gay rights community that it now struggles to fight against. Such a state of denial is telling. Many conservatives spent the entire sexual revolution denying that such a formal cultural upheaval ever occurred in the first place. These individuals believed that the problems of abortion, pornography, illegitimacy, and divorce, and perhaps the issue of how to manage homosexuality in a free society, that these things weren't destined to exist. 
Well, they were wrong. Even during the prior golden decade, just after World War II, all of these problems were present in our society in one form or another. Blindly denying their existence only made the problems worse. In his book published in 1970, Dr. Mace recommended a different approach. He called for honesty in accepting the changes that our society was facing. He called for the church in particular to fulfill its duty to minister rather than to indulge in the temptation to cast judgment. And ultimately, he called for a compromise in the form of minimum standards. Taking a closer look at Mesa's minimum standards, it seems obvious that he was leading Christians, if not in the right direction, at least in a much better direction. Let me recall them. Mace insisted that sexual revolutionaries should, one, refrain from exploitation, two, show propriety with respect to public community standards, and three, accept responsibility for children. By Mesa's standards, a compromise would have had a mitigating impact on each of the aforementioned problems. Abortion. Well, the sexual revolutionaries who agreed to accept responsibility for children born through their sexual activities would need some additional justification for just outright abortion on demand. If you take so-called convenience abortions out of the statistics and you end up with 97% of the abortions disappearing, you really have something there. But unfortunately, I think the failure of Christians to respond to the sexual revolution has made this much too little too late to resolve. Pornography. Although many conservatives believe that all pornography is inherently exploitative, it is clear that some pornography would still exist. This is because a relationship, particularly an indirect relationship between an exhibitionist and a voyeur, well, you know, that's, that's always, you know, whether it's potentially distasteful, that's not going to be an exploitation. That's going to be voluntary, consenting adult behavior. Pornography as an issue still would be effectively settled, though, by the rule against publicly flaunting behaviors that violate community standards of good taste. In other words, you don't have to shove it in people's faces. This harkens directly to a U.S. Supreme Court decision that a couple can legally shoot a pornographic film in their attic, develop the film in their bathroom, and screen it in their basement. There has not been anything to overturn that standard set as long ago as 1973. If only for that reason, it is probably safe to say that pornography is still going to be with us. Illegitimacy. Of Mesa's three rules, number three is clearly the most compelling for illegitimacy. It carries with it a presumption that children should not be conceived by couples unwilling to support the child. His rule might have changed the expression having a child, as though birth is an act of possessing or possession, to bearing a child, which reflects the responsibility inherent in parenting. Divorce. Among the responsibilities parents bear is following through. Divorce is not a parachute, as the illegitimacy point tries to make clear. Stopping divorce, though, has more to do with Mesa's exploitation rule. In other words, people must refrain from getting married for reasons that could be linked to selfishness and thereby to exploitation. Mace also would insist that eliminating exploitation within the relationship after a marriage would also go a long way toward ending many divorces. Homosexuality. Well, by denying this sexual preference a right to exist, conservatives unwittingly forced the issue into public view. Mace's rules might have reversed some of that trend by passively allowing homosexuality um, a rightful place. 
his rule against offending community standards would have kept such behaviors at least somewhat private. He would have tried to find a place where protecting grandma from being offended by what she might see would not force the police to storm into people's private homes and arrest them for things happening in their bedroom. That is actually the logic that cuts to the direct core of the Lawrence versus Texas decision that the Supreme Court recently made and that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on simplysyndicated.com. Please listen to our show, please! There are aspects of the ongoing debate about homosexuality that I still frankly struggle with. For example, is homosexuality understood or even defined by its elemental sodomy? If so, should it reasonably be restricted to private behavior? While gay rights groups might have complained even then about being forced into the closet, they in truth would have had full access to the bedroom, bathroom, patio, and a whole host of private places much kinkier than a closet. On this side of the ledger, the issue is more obvious than homosexual activists would like to acknowledge. Just as it would be inappropriate for a man to frame his identity within the practice of cunnilingus, it is equally inappropriate for a man to frame his identity within the practice of fellatio. Like it or not, some people believe that the term celibate homosexual has no tangible meaning, that homosexuality is a concept, thus will always remain offensive to community standards. Here's where I struggle. I've become convinced that perhaps the concept of celibate homosexual does have some sort of tangible meaning, and therefore these arguments about what should be restricted to private behavior or allowed in public behavior get significantly more fuzzy. However, I will say this. It would be inappropriate for a man to introduce himself to someone in an office environment as a person who is committed to the practice of cunnilingus. Likewise, it is perhaps equally inappropriate for a man to introduce himself and insist that people in an office environment accept him for who he is, when who he is is somebody who's committed to actively practicing fellatio. These are the problems, and they're not easy to solve. And many of them have gotten to the point where they are today, with people trying to legislate each other into segregationist situations over issues that arose from the sexual revolution that were never addressed. Dr. Mace's three principles, while very conciliatory, certainly could not be confused with a moral surrender. And yet, you know what? Many opponents to the sexual revolution have failed to mount any effective counter-revolution because they wouldn't take that first step of acknowledging these kinds of standards that Mace suggested we follow. So, Rather than providing some sort of floor to the cultural debate that ultimately would work as a foundation for further compromises, opponents of the sexual revolution washed their hands of the issue and as a result have washed away any hope for moderation at the same time. I want to go back to what Mays said right after introducing his three principles. Beyond these primary safeguards, others soon begin to emerge. For example, most of us would not want to encourage incest. We'd set age limits to protect the very young, and we would go on and on until a system of sex ethics would begin to take shape. Here's the problem, though. If Christians refuse to acknowledge the validity of sexual revolutionary claims, if Christians put their head in the sand and pretended the whole thing didn't exist, or that there was no conversation that truly needed to be had about these issues, then the first three rules, no exploitation, protect community standards, take care of children. Without that foundation, this entire network of sex ethics never did take shape. 
There's a lot of problems in our society that have come from the sexual revolution. And it would be wrong for me to imply that those problems cannot be laid at the feet of those people who started the revolution. But you know what? I don't stop there. To a certain degree, some of those decisions were simply a matter of cause and effect. In a future episode, I'm going to deal with that. In fact, perhaps next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, our notion of what life was like in the 1950s versus 60s versus 70s, and try to perhaps explain a little bit more about why I think the 1960s and the, and the early 70s were inevitably going to have a sexual revolution attached to them. That inevitability goes back to behaviors that happened in the 1950s. It's enough for now, though, to say that when you see a problem and choose to do nothing about it, you own a large amount of responsibility for the things you didn't do that you should have and could have done. Or at the very least, you own responsibility for that if you presume to put yourself in the position of moral arbiter and stand in judgment against people who did things you don't like. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation about the sexual revolution. As I said right up front, I was going to be dealing with some adult themes, but in my mind, those themes are not explicit. Next week, though, I'm anticipating playing some sound clips, which might put an explicit tag on this program for the first time ever. You've been warned. If you'd like to respond to any of the issues that have been raised today, or perhaps to my specific claim that you're really going to have a hard time finding three credible pro-life scholars... I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And comments are enabled on the website for this show at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks again. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.